Well, good morning. I want to preach this morning on the topic of worth, value. What is something worth? Can you define what things are worth? You know, that's, uh, that's easier said than done. Have you ever looked at someone and looked at their extravagance? Maybe somebody you know made a purchase or involved in something, and you just sort of shake your head and you go, I just, I don't understand spending that kind of money on that, right? Uh, I just, I just can't get my head around why anybody would spend that kind of dollar amount on that. Well, what, what you realize is there's things in your life you spend money on that those same people are looking at going, I just can't understand that. So I thought it'd be fun. Let, let's just start with a little game show here. I'm calling Total Waste. That is a waste of money. Total Waste. The game show is called Total Waste or Totally Worth It. Total waste or totally worth it? There's some things you're going to look at and you're going, that's absolute waste. High dollar items. Let me, let, let's put up the first one. What do you think? Survey says ski equipment. Now, I know if you live in North Alabama, I know what you're thinking, right? But there are people who are into skiing that would say it's a bargain at twice the price. A lot of you are looking at that going, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. You look, you look ridiculous, you're coming down the hill like that, and the amount of money you spent on this ski equipment, but others of you that have felt the wind in your face and the pristine Rockies, you're going, I'd pay any price, right? You get my point? Total waste, totally worth it. Well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Uh, what, about, uh, what about this one? How about this? Where are my foodies at? I don't even know what that is. I don't know if that's a really rare steak or whatever. But some of you gourmets, right, you foodies, you're going totally worth it to experience on my palate all the explosion of flavors. Others of you are like, for $2, I can get a Big Mac, and I'd rather have that, right? Total waste or totally worth it? You gotta, well, to some people, that's totally worth it. Others of you, what about this? What about this? A new pair of Jordans. Uh, we can just move on then, fine, that's all right. <laughs> I can tell by your reaction, right? There's some sneakerheads in here that are like waiting for the latest model to drop. It's totally worth it. You can resell it and people lose their mind. Others are going, that is a pair of sneakers. It's totally waste. All right, just a couple more. Let's get personal. What about an engagement ring? Did I hear an amen, Brother Doggett? Okay, all right. All right. Just so I don't get any single guys in big trouble here. All right, yeah. Now the ladies might say, hey, that's absolutely worth it. Yeah. And poor guys. Well, all right, let's flip it around. What about hunting gear? <laughs> all right, all right, I'm going to cause a church split here. All right, all right. <laughs> the point is, what is it truly worth? The question I'm driving at is, what is it truly worth? We ascribe worth to things. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Some people would say, yes, that's worth every penny. Some people would say, I just don't understand why somebody would spend money on this. Two people, would you agree with me? Two people may look at the same thing and think waste or worth it. And that leads to our text today. The text today centers around one simple and provocative question. What's Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. In this text today, Matthew has masterfully arranges the material. And he does it not chronologically, but theologically. All centered around this question. What 
is Jesus worth? And he structures this passage starting in Matthew 26. We'll start in verse 1. He, he structures it as a sandwich. So up here at the top, the top piece of bread, we're going to look at what Jesus was worth to the chief priests and the religious leaders. The bottom piece of bread is what Jesus was worth to Judas, one of the 12 who betrayed him. And in the middle, we're going to look at what Jesus was worth to this woman in Bethany who anointed him. Now remember the setting. Jesus has preached his final sermon. The time has come. Think about it. We're in Matthew 26. Hey, this is it, y'all. Things are going to move fast now. You know, we only have three messages left in Matthew coming to the end. This is it. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, as if the the all there is significant. Remember, there's been five blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. The fifth is now complete. With Matthew 25, the fifth big block of teaching is complete. His last teaching is... So each time the block of teaching ends, Matthew says, when Jesus said all these things, when he said all these things, when he said all these things, when he said all these things, and now with the final block of teaching, when he has said all these things. The teaching is over. It's time to do what he came to do. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now before we get too deep into this passage, notice, I just want you to notice how completely in control Jesus is. Don't miss this. He he, he keeps saying, my time has come. He keeps predicting things with absolute precision. This is going to happen in two days. And what a way to put it. For those of us who know where this story is going, does that do anything to your heart to hear your Lord Jesus say, the Passover is coming? Obviously, of course, Passover's coming. What a way to put that. Everyone knew that. The absolute highest holy day of the Jewish people to celebrate God's great salvation from the evil Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt, culminating in the death of the Passover lamb. And the blood of that lamb was applied as a substitute that propitiated, that means satisfied and turned away, the wrath of God. That's how the holiday gets its name, you know. The angel of death, the judgment came and delivered death to the firstborn son in each home. But in the homes where a lamb was slain, the judgment passed over that home. Why? Because there was to be no death in that home? No, because there had already been a death. The lamb was the substitute who had died in their place. So Jesus, I think, has a profound double meaning here. He's saying the Passover is coming, but also the Passover is coming. The ultimate deliverance from sin and death, not because of the death of some fluffy white lamb, but because of the death of the sinless, spotless Son of Man. I I, I point this out, and I think it bears pointing out, because you, you may think this poor fellow Jesus was captured by forces outside his control. You'd be wrong. He is in charge. He came for this. No one technically takes Jesus' life from him. Why? He came to lay it down for us and our salvation. These evil men who crucified Jesus are completely responsible for their actions. Everybody hear me? They're completely responsible for their actions. And yet, over it all, God is overruling. Notice, there is no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. No contradiction. As R.T. France has it, Thus, God's saving design and man's malevolence are here woven together in an immensely powerful drama. And so we see first what 
Jesus' worth to the chief priest. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And just notice verse 5. See, their thinking is, right, a messianic fervor is at a fever pitch. As everyone comes in, there's all this nationalistic fervor that bubbles up. And they think, Jesus is so popular when he preaches and teaches. Let's not arrest him in public because, they'll, well, we'll have, a, you know, we'll have an uprising on our hands. And so let, let, let's find a time to arrest him after the Passover. Let's wait till after the Passover. This just shows Jesus is in complete control. Jesus says it's going to happen in two days. They say, no, nah, it's going to happen sometime later. Jesus knows. He can predict what's going to happen. They can't. Even though that's their plan, it wasn't God's plan. So that's the top bread of the sandwich, the chief priest. Then Matthew continues with, uh, actually, this is a flashback. We know that because John, in the next verse, verse 6, the gospel of John gives us a timestamp. Matthew tells the story theologically, not chronologically. So he flashes back to the night before the triumphal entry to this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In verse 14, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So there you have it. Waste or worth it? What is Jesus worth? Matthew is brilliantly inviting us to consider the same question. What is he worth to the chief priests? What is he worth to this woman? What is he worth to Judas? What is he worth to you? Let's take it in that sandwich order. Let's do what is he worth to the chief priest? What is he worth to Judas? Then we'll look at the middle of the sandwich. What is he worth to this woman? And finally, what is he worth to you? That'll be the structure for today. First, what is he worth to the religious leaders? Let's just go back and glance at those verses. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And remember, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They finally passed the point of no return. They can no longer just try and ignore Jesus. They can't silence him. They want him dead. They know they can't take him down openly because he's so popular with all his teachings to arrest him publicly, they would lose their jobs. There'd be an uproar, so they got to take him out when he's alone. The problem is what? Well, they have a real problem arresting Jesus. The only time they know where he is is when he's teaching publicly, but that's the one time they can't arrest him because he's teaching publicly. They could arrest him when he's in private, but when he's in private, they don't know where he is. They didn't have paparazzi back then, right? Tracking his every move. They didn't have any location devices. So when he was alone, that's the problem. He was alone. 
They couldn't, they couldn't ever get him alone, so they formed this council. John tells this same story in John's gospel and sheds a little more light on what happened in the council. Here's what John says. Here's what they said in John eleven forty seven. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, we get the actual dialogue of what was said. What, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. <laughs> what do you mean, what are we to do? How about bow down and worship him? No, they won't do that. They've already decided he's got to be done away with. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, well, you see the irony in all this, right? Like, yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Well, everyone will believe him, and and they're, ah, and here it is. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You hear that? In other words, the the, the religious leaders, especially Caiaphas, who uh, the high priest was anointed every so often. Caiaphas was now on like his 18th year as high priest. He'd somehow uh, had a lot of political savvy. And he did that by playing nice with Rome. The, the, the chief priests have a good thing going with Rome. They've got power. And so they're saying, hey, if, if, if this Jesus thing gets out of hand, we're going to lose our power. Do, do you see their motive? We're going to lose our position. They wanted Jesus gone because he was going to upset the good thing they had going. That's why in a few verses later in John eleven fifty seven, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders if anyone knew where he was— See, if we could get somebody who actually knew where he was in private, let them know so that they can go arrest him. Simply put, to the religious leaders, you can answer the question, what was Jesus worth? He was worth more dead than alive. To them, he was worth more dead than alive. Their motive was simple. They felt threatened by Jesus. Jesus undermined their prestige. He undermined their hold over the people, their self-confidence and self-respect. They were envious of him and therefore determined to get rid of him. This is now, if you think about it, it's significant. Matthew has now recorded two jealous plots by those in power to eliminate Jesus. Do you remember? The first came at the beginning of his life. When King Herod was so envious, he ordered the murder of the innocents. And now the chief priests at the end of his life. Both felt their authority under threat, so both sought to destroy Jesus. Now, here's where our first application comes in. We might quickly excuse ourselves and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like those chief priests. You know, I I would never be like that. I would never devalue Jesus like that. But that same evil passion influences our own attitudes sometimes toward Jesus. Jesus still will mess with your life. (laughs) Jesus is still a threat sometimes to your power and position. C.S. Lewis calls Jesus a transcendental interferer. He's always interfering. Can anybody understand what I mean? That Jesus has just interfered with your life, your plans. Sometimes we resent his intrusions into our privacy, his demand for worship, his expectation of our obedience. You would never say it out loud, but maybe you've thought, why can't Jesus just mind his own business and leave me alone? To which, of course, he would answer, you are my business, and I'll never leave you alone. Well, we perceive him as a threatening rival who disturbs our peace, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority, and diminishes our self-respect. Maybe we would never say it out loud, but maybe all too often we want to get rid of him out of envy and a threat. So that's what he's worth to the religious leaders. He's worth more dead than alive. Now let's go to the bottom of the sandwich. What about Judas? What is Jesus worth to Judas? This one's easy to answer. There's a monetary amount given. Look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, Matthew points out, and over and over when Judas is named, he's always named as one of the 12, heightening the 
betrayal factor in all this. It's not just that he sold Jesus out. It's that one of his own, I thought you were my friend. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And you remember the story. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver would have been a few months' wages. It's interesting, after seeing the jar of nard perfume poured out on Jesus, which John's gospel tells us was worth a year's wages, Judas was infuriated by that waste. This must have been the last straw, and so he sells Jesus out for just a few months' wages. Now, so much has been written about Judas and his motivation, history's most infamous traitor. The chief priests couldn't believe their luck. I mean, they were going to wait till after the Passover. But hey, if one of his own inner circle, if one, of, if one of the 12 were going to give up his location, they could never imagine this. Well, then, yeah, we, we, we can't pass that up. Can't pass that opportunity up. They were going to wait till after the Passover. But this, for them, was too good to be true. So you can imagine Judas comes to him, and, 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 and there's some back and forth. And finally, after some negotiation, they settle on 30 pieces of silver. Now just pause there and ponder the agony of all this. That means that there was a point where Judas did value Jesus. He valued him at a dollar amount less than 30 pieces of silver. But at 30, he'd rather have the money. Do you see that? In other words, 25 pieces of silver, nah, I'd rather keep my friend Jesus alive. 28 pieces of silver, ah, I'll take Jesus. 29 pieces of silver, nah, I'd rather have Jesus alive. But at 30, deal. 30 pieces of silver is interesting because it's an exact amount mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Do you know where 30 pieces of silver, what it represents in the Old Testament? 30 pieces of silver back in the Mosaic Law, 30 pieces of silver in Exodus 21, 32, for example, 30 pieces of silver is the fine a man must pay if his ox accidentally gores a slave to death. It's the, it's the price of a slave. So you're... you're, you're responsible, ultimately, you, you own this livestock, and it gores uh, your neighbor's uh, a slave working in the field. It was 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament law. And then it's picked up again in the prophets. In Zechariah 11, God's faithful shepherd rescued Israel from those evil shepherds, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Isn't it something? Jesus was sold out for the price of a slave. Philippians 2 says, doesn't it, that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took upon himself the form of a bondservant, a slave, and made himself nothing. So there you have it. What is Jesus worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. Let's pause and take stock. For the chief priests, he was worth more dead than alive because ultimately they did not want him interfering. Before we too quickly dismiss ourselves from that, we think, how often have we told Jesus, I don't want you interfering? When it comes to Judas, it was simply the love of money. Oh, maybe his motives were more complex than this. Maybe he was frustrated Jesus wouldn't set up an earthly kingdom. You know, maybe he wanted a fresh start with a new leader. Maybe he wanted a Messiah who would actually fight. Or maybe it was just simply the love of money. When John tells this story in his gospel, he said it was Judas who said aloud, what, what a waste. Why wasn't this perfume sold? John, in John chapter 12, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Judas is the one who puts a price on it. Judas, ever calculating, puts a price on it. He does some quick math. He says it was worth a year's wages. Now, John tells us about his motive. John said, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor. He said it because as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. 
Judas was embezzling money from the 12. And so when he sees a $50,000 gift being poured out on Jesus, he thinks, what a waste, you should have run that through my books. That would have been more for him to pilfer. Love of money. And so he, he sees this year's wages gift poured out and sells Jesus out for a third of that. Now, here we go again. There's an application here for us. Before we immediately distance ourselves and say, that could never be me. It's not for nothing that Jesus tells us, beware, envy, covetousness. Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So many times when it comes to bad behavior, have you ever heard this expression? You ever heard this one? Follow the money. You ever hear that in corruption or in politics? People just say, follow the money. Politicians pervert justice for bribes, give contracts to the highest bidder. Spies sell out their country for money. Business leaders enter into shady deals to get a better price. And supposedly spiritual teachers turn religion into a commercial enterprise. Call it what you want. In the end, it's the same as Judas. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Jesus said, it's impossible to serve God and money. And so Judas just chose the money. Many others have done the same. So we see what Jesus is worth to the religious leaders. We see what Jesus is worth to Judas. What is he worth to this woman? Verse 6, the middle of the sandwich. It's beautiful. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Isn't that great? (laughs) Simon the leper. Simon is a very common name. Simon the leper. For some reason, I, I don't, why would he keep this nickname? Isn't that something? Obviously, he's not Simon the literal leper right now, or they wouldn't be hanging out in his house, right? So he would have been an outcast. So obviously, this is Simon the former leper. We don't know, but it is likely that he is one of the lepers that Jesus healed. And he kept the nickname. I'm Simon, the one Jesus healed from leprosy. Incredible. He was a leper no more. Well, that's, uh, uh, this, this woman came up to him. Uh, Matthew leaves her unnamed. John tells us exactly who it was. She's got this alabaster flask of expensive ointment, poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, I want to show you in John's version, and here's why. He gives a, a little more detail. Matthew told us who the event host was. This was hosted at Simon the leper's uh, venue. That's the Matthew version. So John uh, tells us not only, he doesn't tell us the name of the host, he tells us the name of the caterer, as well as uh, some of the other guests. This is John chapter 12, verse 1. This is the same story, same moment told in John's six days before the Passover. There's the timestamp John gives us. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So we learn Lazarus was there, and obviously that had just happened in John 11. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, which is great, right? To the disciples' perspective, they're going, hey, we're marching into Jerusalem tomorrow. And they're thinking, not what else could go wrong, what else could go right? I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus is at the all-time zenith of his popularity. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. We've seen the man walk on water. He's fed the 5,000, and now he can raise the dead. Caesar does not stand a chance against this Messiah. So they think we're going to march into Jerusalem, and we're going to take down Rome. We're going to be rich. We're going to be 
powerful. So why not host a banquet for Jesus? And everybody's laughing, and they're partying, and they're so excited, and they're celebrating. Some of the disciples are probably calculating. James is thinking, man, when we get in power, I'm going to be Jesus' vice president. And Peter thinks, I'll be secretary of state. And uh, Judas thinks, I'll be secretary of the treasury. Right? They're going through all this excitement. James and John are already thinking, I'll be on the right hand, I'll be on the left hand. They're so excited by all this. There's Lazarus. Tell it again, Lazarus. Tell it again. Okay. Give your testimony again, Lazarus. It's incredible. It's always incredible to hear Lazarus' testimony. So Lazarus starts in, well, as you know, a few months ago, I was really sick, and Mary and Martha didn't believe me. <laughs> well, <laughs> next time, Martha, you'll take me serious. Ha! <laughs> because I died. <laughs> and then, you know, I was going to this big light, and Jesus called me back, and I came out, and I was wrapped in grave clothes. I was like, what's that smell? Oh, it's me. Anyway, he, oh, they love it, right? They love it. He's full of power. He's unbelievable. And right in the middle, a Martha served, and oh, it's such good food. Lazarus was among those reclining with him at the table. Can you imagine? This guy raised my dead brother back from the dead, serving the delicious food. It's southern Judea, so it's kosher, but it's deep fried. You know what I'm saying? So it's good southern cooking. And then out of nowhere, Mary, well, I say out of nowhere. I, I, every time we see Mary, it seems like Mary has insight that nobody else has right here. That's the takeaway in part, is that Mary can see something. The chief priest certainly saw the opposite, and Judas certainly saw the opposite. But Mary sees something with different insight. Mary took about a pint, a, a, a pound, a, Mary took about a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, the spike nard perfume uh, supposedly comes from it's some rare herb that grows in the Himalayas. Well, the Himalayan mountains are a long way from Judea. They're a long way from Bethany. So you can imagine the cost of this. And this uh, a rare spikenard perfume, we, we, we have the word ointment. Ointment kind of makes you think of a, some sort of cream, topical cream. Ointment, think more um, like perfume. Um, anointing oil is probably closer than, than uh, don't think of, uh, you know, cortisone. <laughs> think uh, 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 something that runs viscous like honey maybe. Made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And can't you imagine that? What devotion smells like. The whole house filled with the fragrance. Isn't it interesting that Matthew says she breaks open the alabaster jar and anoints his head. But John tells us there was so much oil. Pound goes a long way. So much oil that it goes all the way where? All the way down to his feet. And realizing it goes all the way down to the feet and not having a towel, boy, that, there's a lot there. She just uses her own hair. Incredible. Now, is this a strange thing she's doing? Well, it certainly would have shocked the people there, I think. But they would have at least understood this concept of anointing. This much expensive perfume all over Jesus. To the Jews, anointing meant something. Uh, we use the word anoint as in the CEO anointed her successor or whatever. But, but anointing, th 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 there, were, there were groups of people that were anointed in the Old Testament. Do you know who was anointed in the Old Testament? When uh, God told Elijah, go take Elisha and anoint him as a prophet. 
For example, that's 2 Kings. When, um, for example, when, uh, oh, 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 what about in the Torah when uh, God says, I'm going to take a group of people and make them holy, set apart. They're going to be my high priests. They're going to be my priests. So Moses, take Aaron and anoint him. They would break open this oil over the head of Aaron and the priests. So you would anoint prophets, you would anoint priests. And most famously of all, do you remember in, um, in the, in, in the Sa- Samuel series, remember when the little shepherd boy, David, they call him in there, and, he, and, and, and the prophet says he's going to be the once and future king. They anoint David in this way. So prophets and priests and kings were anointed. Do you, do you think Mary understood something about Jesus? That he was both prophet and priest and king? How does Mary get this insight? This is the third time we've seen Mary, and every time we see Mary in the scriptures, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. The first time we see her, Jesus has gone into the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha is busy with so many preparations. Mary is just sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening carefully to the teachings. You remember this story? The second time uh, uh, was at the death of Lazarus, and Lazarus, uh, 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 Jesus comes four days, they think four days too late, and Martha says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, and Jesus has an interaction and gives Martha just what she needs to comfort, talks about the resurrection and the life. You remember that story? If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. He said, your brother will rise again, Martha. I know he'll rise again at the resurrection. You remember what Jesus says? I know it will rise again at the resurrection. Jesus says, you're looking at it. What you're looking for is who you're looking at. I am the resurrection and the life. And then when Mary comes out, falls right at his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus just weeps. Isn't that something? Here she is again at the feet of Jesus. The first she's learning. Here she's leaning. And here, in this moment, she's loving. My point is, she has insight that can only come from time spent at the feet of Jesus. She sees him as prophet, priest, and king with such insight. And she anoints him with this this nard perfume. It's extravagant. I mean, think about the cost of this. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Isn't that something? It upset. When you see the extravagant worship of someone, it often exposes your heart. And they realize they haven't given this extravagant kind of gift. And so they're indignant and they get self-righteous. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And it is expensive. A $50,000 jar of perfume to, to use modern amounts? $50,000 jar of perfume. And, 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 and this is a, I mean, this is, a, I mean, look, when we think perfume or cologne, we think spritz, spritz, you know. I'm going to put on a little smell good, put on a little old spice, high karate, you know. Anybody? 70s perfumes? No? We think we're going to spritz and go out, but you still, after you're done putting on the perfume, you've still got some on your shelf. This was very different. This was, this was not a resealable screw-top jar of nard perfume. This was a one-and-done situation. The alabaster box, the whole idea, you broke it open. Think those old piggy banks where the only way to get the money out was to break the thing open. That's the idea. So let me ask you, when would you use the sheer cost, $50,000, and then, and then the fact that you break it open and you, get, you use all of it or, or none of it, use it all at once. Let me ask you, when, this, is like, this is a treasure. This is an heirloom. Some commentators say this represents the bulk of her wealth, the most she had. You tell me, when is it appropriate to use that kind of gift on someone? When would anybody use that kind? I mean, right? I mean, have any of you ever been given a special gift, maybe some special stationery or some special china? And it's a running joke. 
because you've never used it. You think, well, I just don't know who I'm, I don't know, the stationery is too beautiful and too special. You know, it was hand-woven from the linens of the Himalayas or whatever, you know? And so you think, I don't, I don't you know, I was going to leave a little note to somebody, but I can't do it on the good stationery. I can't eat on this china, you know? And it's like, well, when would you use that stationery? Finally, Mr. President, like, like, when would you use it? When would you use this china? I mean, I remember asking my mom, like, the president is not coming to Murray, Kentucky. We can eat on this. I promise. You don't have to save it. The queen is not like, I can't believe they've used this before I got here. Like, it's, it's not going to happen right? So when do you use a jar of nard perfume? The answer is this. I told you there are three people who are anointed by, perfu- by this ointment in the Old Testament. There's actually four. You anointed prophets, priests, kings, and the dead. Spike nard was a burial perfume. And so the way it worked is this. They didn't have all the embalming techniques and ways you preserve bodies now. And so You would prepare a body, and the final act of honoring that body, what you would do is when your most beloved family member dies, you would then, and only then, break open that jar of nard perfume as if to say, this is what they meant to me. And then you would bury them with that beautiful smelling perfume, and then you would leave the box broken there in the tomb. Can you imagine? So from their perspective, they're going, this is a waste. Messiah is going to be here forever. Jesus is going to be here forever. Why, why would you do that? You can imagine everybody in the room going, this is a waste. Why would you do that? In fact, the funniest perspective to me to think of is, I just told you, you would use this burial perfume when your most beloved family member died. Let me ask you, what's Lazarus thinking? <laughs> you know, I died, right? Are you just going to sprinkle some salt on me? Like, what, I got nothing, you know? So you see from everybody's perspective, this is a waste. I just want to make that clear. This extravagant act was an absolute waste from everyone's perspective except one. Listen to me. They called it waste. He called it worship. Look at what Jesus says. He knew. He knew exactly what they were saying. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She's not doing it to you. Back off, Judas. This doesn't concern you, Judas. They called it waste. Jesus calls it worship. So what's the point? What is Jesus worth to the chief priest? He's worth more dead than alive. What is he worth to Judas? He's worth 30 pieces of silver. What is he worth to this woman? There is no gift too extravagant for Jesus, according to Mary, the sister of Martha. There is no praise I could give Jesus that is too high. There is no glory that I could give my Lord Jesus that is too great. And how dare, how dare Judas put a price tag on what Mary did? What does Judas know about Mary's worship? That's worth pointing out. You may look at somebody who is very expressive in their worship, and you may think, isn't that a little over the top? Be careful. You don't know what their praise cost. Do you know what I mean by that? You don't know what their praise cost. In other words, you don't know what they had to walk through to be able to lift their hands and say, hallelujah, anyhow. You never know what another person's worship cost. 
And so we might say, well, that, that, that's extravagant or that's too much. You don't know the darkness God's brought them through. You don't know the pain God has freed them from. You don't know what another person's praise costs. Some people will look at the way you spend your time, Christian, and they will say, really? Aren't you at the church a lot? I mean, volunteering and all that, isn't it a bit much? You don't know. They call it waste. He calls it a beautiful thing. Some people might look at your, an outsider might look at your finances. And they would say, well, you know, you'd be a lot better if you would dial back that giving, if you would dial back that offering. You hear echoes of that, don't you? They call it waste. But Jesus says, it's a beautiful thing done to me. This doesn't concern anyone else. She's not doing it for herself. She's not doing it for the praise of others. She's doing it unto me. And to anyone who says, yeah, but there's better ways to spend your time. There's better ways to spend your money and your resources than just worshiping Jesus. Well, they raised the same objection back then. Just give it to the poor. If you're just going to waste it, verse 11, Jesus answers brilliant. You'll always have the poor with you. You won't always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus is not dismissing the need to care for the poor. Jesus was a champion for the poor. What he's saying is there'll be plenty of time to help the poor. There's not much time left for me. He's quoting, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 15, which literally says, the poor you will always have with you. There'll be plenty of time to do all the charity you want to the poor, but the window for worshiping me is closing, and she's preparing for my burial. It's as if Mary sees what no one else is seeing. So what is Jesus worth to Mary? Everything. Broken open. Do you got the picture? Can you smell this scene? Broken open at the feet of Jesus. And she doesn't just dab a little bit. You know, I wonder uh, 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 if some of us would prefer the resealable screw top jar of nard. If the nard represents the best we have. If the nard represents our time and talent and treasure. I, I wonder if some of us would prefer, you know, Jesus, I give you a little bit, but come on, I've got to reserve the lion's share for me. I'm not opposed to you know, having a little bit of Jesus in my life, but now let's not get extravagant. Not, G not Mary. She breaks the jar open. So that's it. That's what Jesus is worth to the chief priest, the Judas. And we've seen what he's worth to Mary. What about you? What is he worth to you? You'll either see the 30 pieces of silver as the waste and the perfume as the beautiful thing, or you'll see Jesus as the waste and the silver is the beautiful thing. The musicians are going to come and help us in a time of reflection, and I simply want us to reflect on that question. What is Jesus worth to you? And what happens, by the way, what happens to Mary? What happens to a life broken open at the feet of Jesus? Before you, uh, 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 don't, uh, don't miss this. Mary wiping feet with her hair. I asked you, can you smell what's going on in the room? You, you ever get just like a, a dab of a scent and you can't shake it? You smell it. The sense of smell is really a powerful thing. It's an amazing thing. Just the other day we were talking about this. I, uh, I made some weird coffee. Somebody had given me this weird coffee. It was coffee that was blueberry flavored. I know, I know. Waste or worth it. Well, I know, I know. We already played that game. Anyway, I make this blueberry coffee, and I thought, well, that was kind of weird. I don't know if I'll do it again. It was a nice gift, and I try it, whatever. You know, the next day, we use the same coffee pot. The next day, uh, my wife says, you know, I could still taste that blueberry coffee. Like days later, little traces, little hints. Isn't that something? Sense of, sense of smell, very powerful. So what does it do when a pound of nard ointment gets in your hair? What did Mary smell like all week? It's all wrapped up in her. It's all wrapped up in her hair. She smelled exactly like her Savior, didn't she? She smelled just like her Savior. 
Paul picks up on that exact same imagery for a life that is, you can't outgive Jesus. She did this as a beautiful thing to Jesus, but look at all the beauty that's poured out on Mary. You can't outgive it. Paul picks up on this exact thing in 2 Corinthians 14 through 16. He says, we're being led in triumphal procession as the fragrance of Christ. And then he says something very interesting. He says, to those who are perishing, we smell like death. But to those who are being saved, we smell like life. That's exactly right. For the rest of the week, Mary got to smell this incredible gift, and it was worship. And those who knew Jesus and knew his value, they would pick up as Mary would pass by. They would would smell that, and they would think of this extravagant act of worship. And it was just causing more and more worship and praise. And to Judas, it made him sick. Every time he smelled it, it made him sick. Think, what a waste. I think, isn't that something? She was going to do this great blessing to Jesus, but look how she was blessed. The chief priests ended up with nothing. We've never heard from the chief priests again. And Judas ended up with less than nothing. Do you know what Judas ended up with, those 30 pieces of silver? Do you remember after the whole thing went down? Do you remember what he tried to do with the 30 pieces of silver? What did he spend them on? What did he invest in? Do you remember? He tried to, he tried to give it back. Out of shame and regret and guilt and agony, he tries to go to the temple treasury and give it back. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Once you've betrayed Jesus, you try to buy your way back through an old religious system. Boy, there's a whole whole sermon there. Once you've betrayed Jesus, you try to get back in his good graces through religious practices. It doesn't work. Judas ended up with less than nothing. The chief priest no one's ever heard from again. But Mary, look at verse 13. Mary, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It is a staggering thing to actually experience prophecy being fulfilled right before your very eyes. But that's what we've experienced this morning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus made this prediction that when they preach this gospel, they're going to tell the story of what this woman did. You never heard from the chief priests again. We never heard from Judas again. This woman, through this beautiful act, has had limitless and profound influence around the world. And she's still blessing today. Why? Because she wouldn't play it safe, and she decided that in her life, Jesus was going to be worth everything. What about you? What's he worth to you? Are you, are you, do you need to repent this morning from the little screw-top jar of nard pouring out, or are you broken open at the feet of Jesus in surrender to him? What is he worth to you? Let's pray. God, thank you that you were broken open and poured out out of obedience to your Father and love for us. And thank you, Lord, that you are worth everything. Oh, God, forgive us when we act like chief priests and we wish you wouldn't interfere in our life. Forgive us when we act like Judas and we love money. God, grant to us a heart like Mary who decided you were worth everything and that no cost, no praise, no glory was too extravagant for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?